Okay, now we're going to read the 118th Psalm, and I want to let you know, I did not plan this. I've just been reading the Psalms in order, and it happens that the 118th Psalm bears on exactly what we're going to be uh, talking about today. So uh, it's pretty wonderful that that happened. And uh, we'll go ahead and read that. We'll get started with the 118th Psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me down violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you. For you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the wonderful words of the psalmist, which tell us about the work of Jesus our Lord. Thank you for this beautiful week that you've given us. The weather's been wonderful. You've given us just sunshine and blue sky and uh, joy in our hearts down here in Florida, and we thank you for that. And I thank you for the people that are here this morning, and uh, I just ask that you would bless each one of them and that they'll hear something that will build them up and edify them from your word and that uh, will show them the wonderful mysteries you've concealed in the Old Testament, which are revealed in the New Testament. All these stories and pictures of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Oh God, we thank you for him. We ask that you bless this service and just be with us in the week ahead. Oh God, thank you. Thank you again for Jesus, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, just a few announcements. Um, uh, some of you know this, and probably most of you here know this, but on Tuesday, Hideko and I went down and we closed on a building. It's at 6512 Superior Avenue, and uh, it's a storefront. It's an ind independent store, but it's in a line of other stores, so it looks like a strip mall. And uh, it's uh, small. It's, uh, you know, it's going to be a little cozy, but it is church on the beach. Now has a, a place to meet. And uh, I've spent the past three days in there tearing out old, old walls, and we've got a lot of other things to do. Um, we're going to knock out the back wall and extend the building a little bit to make it a little bigger. 
redo the bathrooms and all that stuff that needs to be done to bring it up to code. And uh, I don't know how long that's going to take, you know, whether it takes a month or two months or whatever, but we'll be there uh, faithfully tearing stuff out and putting new stuff in and redoing this and redoing that. But it's exciting to see, uh, you know, that we won't have to meet in the, the rain or the red tide or whatever things uh, come our way each week. It'll be nice to have a little place to meet. And um, we, uh, I think everybody here has been baptized. If you haven't and you want to go out today, we can just go right out to the water and uh, have a baptism. And um, uh, this is our 65th Genesis sermon today uh, that we're doing. We are in Genesis uh, chapter 28. And um, I have a couple prayer requests. There are some people that uh, attend church on the beach that have had some very difficult weeks or people that they live with have had uh, medical problems and, uh, you know, just like to lift them up in prayer and also uh, remind you, uh, Paul Stoll, who is back in Sarasota, he was um, our missionary over in Japan for a year, uh, he is going in for a three heart valve replacement this week. Actually, two will be replaced and one will be repaired. And uh, his, you know, he has like some type of a scan on Tuesday and then they'll set him up for the actual work, which will probably be by Friday. It may be the week after that. But uh, keep Paul in prayer. It's been a long trying year for him, and he's been faithful in his uh, mission work, and now he's back here, and uh, he needs to get this done. Uh, so uh, just remember these people in prayer, and uh, I know if you're having troubles, you can email me anytime, and we'll, we'll keep you in prayer as well. But um, this week, I'm not going to do a New Testament reading. Uh, I try to do it each week, but this sermon is a little bit longer and so um, because of that, I'm going to uh, just skip a New Testament reading, and we'll just go right into the 120th Psalm. And I'm going to skip the 119th Psalm simply because it's 176 verses long, and uh, we'd be here until midnight reading them. But uh, while I'm looking for the 120th Psalm, I will tell you that the 119th Psalm is a psalm which I read every day of my life. It's the very first thing I do each morning. It's divided up into 22 octaves or sections of eight verses, and I read one of those eight verses uh, each morning. And uh, that's because the 119th Psalm speaks about God's word in almost every single verse. Time and time again, it brings in the Lord's word. It brings in um, uh, his statutes, his ordinances, and it asks uh, God to reveal those things to us. And so just as the 119th Psalm. So if uh, you are a uh, uh, you know, a Bible reader, it's a good place to start your day each day because it gets your mind in the right perspective of understanding uh, what you are going to read, asking the Lord to help you with that. Um, and um, here we go to the 120th Psalm. It's a short one. It says, um, it's a song of ascents. Now, after the 119th Psalm, we get into, I believe it's 14 Psalms, which are called songs of ascents. And these Psalms, what they do is they start outside of Israel and they work toward the land of Israel. They come to the borders of Israel. They go into Israel. It's, these are called pilgrim songs because as you are reading them, you are moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. And then eventually you get into Jerusalem. You start moving towards the temple. And then you move in towards the intersection of the temple until finally you're in the presence of God. And you're ascending this entire time. Jerusalem is always a reference point in the Bible, the highest reference point. Wherever you're going from Jerusalem, you're always going down. And when you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. So as you're reading the Bible, you'll notice that. But these are the songs of ascents leading us up to God's holy hill. And the first one is the 120th Psalm. It says there, In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, 
and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? Oh, what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Mesech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, that started all the way back up in Mesech, which is believed to be Moscow. So you can see how far away it is, and he's longing for the Lord and for uh, fellowship with the Lord, and he's got a long travel to get down into Jerusalem and to uh, worship at the temple. But that's the first of the Songs of Ascents, uh, the 120th Psalm. So uh, now that that's done, we'll go ahead and get into our uh, main sermon today. And uh, I better hang on to this because I'm going to need it. I do that every week. I throw it on the ground, then I have to get right back up and pick it up. But um, before we get into the sermon itself, we'll do this day in history. Today is 10 March. And uh, on this day in 1496, Columbus concluded his second visit to the Western Hemisphere when he left Hispaniola for Spain. And uh, this was a great man. Some people have uh, traced Columbus's roots back to Jewish uh, uh, ancestors. And uh, whether that's true or not, I, I can't really verify, but it was an interesting thing I read about that. But uh, his name, Christopher, he's the Christ bearer. And uh, as he went along, he would, you know, put the standard of the, the Christian standard on the islands that he uh, went to. And uh, the stories of Christopher Columbus are really astonishing. If you've never read about his life and the things he did, he was, he was a really great person. But during his life, he wasn't always in favor. He was carried back to uh, Spain in chains at times. And, uh, you know, he's just his life is one kind of marvel. But uh, that was uh, 1496. Columbus concluded his second visit to the Western Hemisphere. Then in 1656, something I didn't know about, but in the American colony of Virginia, suffrage was extended to all free men regardless of their religion. So at one point in Virginia's history, apparently uh, maybe you're a Catholic or a Baptist or something, you couldn't vote. And uh, that was uh, uh, eventually done away with if you were a free man. Then, of course, it was later that slaves were given that right and also women. But uh, that was way back in 1656. And then in 1776, Thomas Paine published, what did he publish? Common Sense. Very good. I, I could have guessed you'd get that. Uh, that was done in 1776. And that was one of the great publications, which was as much as anything else a reason why the colonists united and came against England, was the work of uh, Thomas Paine. And uh, then in 1804, the formal ceremonies transferring the Louisiana Purchase from France to the U.S. took place in St. Louis. And that it, one one stroke of a pen doubled the size of the uh, United States. It was uh, 898,000 square miles, I believe, and uh, I think we paid a little over $3 million for it. It came out to just over $0.03 cents, um, per acre that we uh, purchased with um, uh, the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, a lot of people were against it. They thought, you know, the French couldn't do anything with it. How can we? And, uh, of course, we went right in there and made great things out of uh, that area. And if you've never looked at the picture, it goes all the way from Louisiana all the way up as far as Montana. It includes parts of Colorado. It conclude, uh, includes things all the way over to, like, as far as almost Illinois. It's this giant piece of land. 
And I saw somebody laugh when I said the French couldn't do anything with it because they, they couldn't. They couldn't do anything with the Panama Canal, and we moved them out and moved in and did it ourselves. So, um, you know, it, it uh, took a little bit of American ingenuity and know-how to uh, do these things. But like Seward's Icebox, which was Alaska, you know, we bought that, and people said what a big mistake that was. And we got more in minerals out of that in the past 10 minutes than it, we paid for it a thousand times over. I mean, people don't have very much foresight about buying things, and uh, some people do, and it turns out to be a plus, and we'll hope that with the, the building for church on the beach as well. Um, let's see here. Uh, that was um, 1849. Abraham Lincoln applied for a pa- Abraham Lincoln. I never knew this. He applied for a patent for a device to lift vessels over shoals by means of inflated cylinders. So you inflate these things, up goes the vessel, over the shoal, and then back down again. So he wasn't just a great president, he was an inventor as well. And I had no idea about that. Um, Then we come to 1864. Ulysses S. Grant became the commander of the Union armies in the U.S. Civil War. And, uh, of course, he uh, prevailed over Lee. And uh, before him, there were several commanders of these armies, and they just failed pitifully. They, uh, one guy wouldn't even take his troops into battle. He was this young guy and everybody had all the hopes in the world for him and he never even engaged anybody in battle, even with overwhelming odds. But uh, Grant was picked and uh, he turned out to be a great president as well, S- served two consecutive terms. And uh, anyway, that was 1864. And then in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell made the first successful call with the telephone. He spoke the words, anybody know what he said? That's exactly right. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. So uh, got somebody here that seems to know his history pretty well. And then in uh, 1880, the Salvation Army arrived from the U.S., uh, in the U.S. from England. And I will tell you that the Salvation Army, if you want to make a donation to a worthwhile cause, and uh, we are now open for donations for Church on the Beach, just so you know that. But um, uh, if you want a worthwhile cause outside of the ministry that you attend each week, um, I would say the Salvation Army is at the very top of the list. Less than 1% of what they take in is used for administrative costs. The commanding general of the Salvation Army gets an annual salary of $13,000 probably gets a house to live in. It's probably very meager at that, but um, that's his uh, annual salary. And I can tell you the goodwill, the guy gets everything for free. He sells it all at, uh, you know, for a profit. And he himself, the uh, owner of goodwill, gets over like almost $2 million a year in salary. And uh, it's like 60 or 70% uh, overhead. There's very little given away to anybody. The same is true with anything that begins with UN, UNESCO or UNICEF or whatever. Your money is being frittered away if you give it to them. It's being misapplied, it's being misdirected, and it's being mishandled. So uh, don't give to anything that begins with UN. Um, American Red Cross, the the person in charge of that gets uh, like a million dollars a year, and they have a giant administrative budget. So be careful where you spend your money if you're going to give to a charity. But I can recommend the uh, Salvation Army. They do a great deal of good. You can go down anytime and see their facilities in Sarasota, and uh, you will be amazed at how well they take care of people that most people would never talk to, would never even address on the street. They tend to them just as if they were their own brothers and sisters, because they are. What about St. Jude? Uh, who's that? St. Jude. I don't know anything about St. Jude. I'd go online and I'd read up, and you can get all of that right off of the uh, 
you know, the general accounting sites as to what their administrative budgets are. But it's probably a pretty good being a, a religious uh, affiliated uh, uh, thing, but I don't know anything about it personally. Um, in 19, uh, let's see, 45, American B-29 bombers attacked Tokyo, Japan, and 100,000 were killed. And if you've ever seen the uh, photos of Tokyo after we were done with it, it was nothing. There was nothing left. A couple buildings scattered here and there, and it was completely destroyed. However, I will say a lot of people really get down on America for its use of two nuclear weapons, and uh, they saved lives in the end because without those uh, bombings, it would have been this way, the Tokyo way, city after city after city after city. And there would have been not just hundreds of thousands, but millions of people would have been killed. And so as bad as nuclear weapons were to be used, and another argument that just comes to mind is that people say, well, we should have set them off on an uninhabited island. They wouldn't have gone to check that uninhabited island. It would have made no difference to the Japanese. They were set on the course of war, and um, uh, it, it was a very sad thing which happened. But uh, the point that I always make about these war uh, bombings is that 100,000 people in whatever amount of time it took uh, woke up that morning and uh, never went to bed that night. And whatever shoes they put on, they never took off. And every one of us has choices to make in this life. And uh, if we don't make the right choices, then we are the ones that will suffer the consequences. And the choice must be Jesus Christ. If we don't choose Jesus, it is eternal separation from God the Father. That is all there is to it. There is one way. We'll talk about that here during the sermon today. But uh, uh, don't deceive yourself and don't be deceived. There is one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to read the uh, text for today. And uh, this is Genesis 28, verses 10 through 21. It's 11 verses, and it's entitled, A Ladder to Heaven. So here we go. Uh, Genesis 28, verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the, the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Lutz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going to give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, I'm reading the whole chapter, I shouldn't have done that, but uh, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Those last three verses will be next week's sermon, but uh, uh, I didn't stop where I should have. But anyway, that's our uh, text for today. And I will tell you that there is a pattern 
in the characters that we've seen in Abraham, in Isaac, and in Jacob. Actually, there's a couple of them in Abraham. But in Abraham, he was introduced and his life was one of authority. It was one of decision and it was one of action. He was like a picture we have of Jesus as our great and conquering king. And then came the life of Isaac. His life as recorded is one of submission and compliance. Now I want to let you know that Isaac may have gone out in battles just like Abraham did, but none of it is recorded. And the reason why is because we're to glean only pictures of certain things about Jesus from each of these lives. In Isaac, he is a compliant person, he's a submissive person. Instead of going to get a wife, his father sent a servant while he remained in the uh, promised land. Isaac was non-confrontational and he played a quieter role in the pages of the Bible. This would be a picture of God the Son, the one who lives to do his father's will. And then Jacob now takes the center stage. Isaac has moved out of the focus and uh, Jacob's life will be one of trials. It's going to be one of struggles. It's going to be one with all kinds of uh, tests of his uh, manliness, basically. He'll suffer loss. He's going to suffer heartache. And yet he is always looking to the future glory, which is presented to him. He's not unlike Jesus, who is our suffering servant in many ways. Jesus is the one who came to redeem fallen man by his own shed blood. Our text verse for today comes from the book of John. It's chapter 1. And uh, we read these words. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now I'll tell you right there that uh, the term Messiah and the term Christ means the anointed one. Okay, a lot of people think that Christ is a name. If you talk to a Jewish person, it's almost unanimous. That's what they think. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's his name. It's not it at all. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah. And what it means is to anoint something with oil. A person or a, a place or a thing is anointed. A person would be a Messiah. And there are other Messiahs in the Bible, but there is one that they all prefigure, and that would be Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been to one or two or more of our Genesis sermons, then you know that God has put many hints of this coming Messiah, this Christ the Lord Jesus in this foundational book. Everything in history is looking forward to him and everything since he came is looking back on what he did and then in anticipation of more good things to come. It is all about Jesus. And once again, we're going to see this today. There are beautiful pictures which are hidden in this ancient story waiting to be unpackaged and presented to our eager hearts and minds. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now we have only two thoughts today. They're a little longer than normal. The first one is Christ our mediator. If you don't know what a mediator is, you have two parties. Like this week when we bought that building, there's the seller and there's the uh, purchaser. And usually you will have somebody that stands in the middle to make sure that things go harmoniously. It may be that there's a mediator between God and man in the giving of the law of Moses. Or there may be a mediator between two people that are suing each other. And uh, they decide to go through mediation instead of through the court. It's somebody that deals with two parties that are maybe opposed to each other or that there's some conflict between the two. Whether it's real conflict or possible conflict. Anyway, here we go with verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Jacob is here departing to find a bride on his journey. 
and he leaves Beersheba, which means the well of the oath or the well of the seven, and he heads towards Haran, which is in Padanaram. This is a picture of Jesus coming to earth to redeem fallen man. And we know this because we saw it in last week's sermon. Different words are used at different times to show us different things. Last week it said Padanaram. This week it says Haran. It includes the name Beersheba, which we haven't seen for quite a while in the Bible. These words and these names are given specifically to show us what God is doing at this particular time. Now this theme of the redemption of man is going to continue throughout the life of Jacob. Beersheba, as I said many, many sermons ago, is a picture of the dwelling of the Lord as he's in heaven. Beersheba, meaning the well of the seven, pictures the seven spirits of the Lord, which are mentioned in the book of Isaiah and then in the, again in the book of Revelation. Haran means mountainous, and it's in the area of Padanaram. And as we saw last week, Padanaram means elevated ransom. There is a high cost to redeem fallen man, and this verse is here to show us this. Jesus left the dwelling of the Lord, which is heaven, in order to come to earth to pay a very high price for fallen man. But this is also, there's a dual picture in this particular passage today. This is a picture of the nation of Israel. Jacob is in a type of exile from the promised land, which is resulting in his wrong actions in deceiving his father, but he is also the one who holds the birthright. He's the one who holds the blessing, and he is the one that holds the promise of restoration. The picture is seen in Israel as they have twice been sent out of the land for evil doing. Now, as a reminder, I mentioned last week that most commentators say that Jacob left on this journey alone. Okay, when he's out to find a wife, he's going alone. But there is no doubt that he went with Deborah, Rebecca's wet nurse. She went with him, so he's not alone. Other people could have gone with him, but we don't know that for certain. We don't know how many if they did. However, the story of his return here and his travels in Canaan, when he comes back from this uh, journey of 20 or so years, Deborah is along with him. And as she pictures the Word of God, her name is Deborah, which means be, and it's a picture of the Word of God, the Bible, we can see how he here pictures Jesus, because Jesus is never separated from the Word, because he is the Word. A wet nurse is the one who brings forth and tends to children in a family, and the Word of God is what brings forth and tends to God's children as well. The significance of what this here pictures is not to be underestimated because Jacob is going on his travels with her. Verse 11, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Now we're going to see in a few verses that this place is known as Bethel, which is about 48 miles north of Beersheba. So it was a, quite a long journey for his first day of traveling. At Jacob's time, this area is known as Lutz, and this is where he stops for the first night but he doesn't stop inside the city. The reason is not given why he doesn't go into the city, but it does say that the sun had set. And it could be that the gate had already, or the city had already closed its gates because that's what they did you know, in the uh, ancient cities is they closed the gates at the evening time so that marauders and you know, invaders wouldn't come in. But it could also be that he didn't want to go inside of the city because the people were pagans. And I'd personally favor this second option because of the name that the city has right now. I'll explain it later, but the name of the city is currently Lutz. Whatever the reason is, though, he stays out in the open place where he just arbitrarily chooses a stone to make as his pillow. 
This reminds us of Jesus' words from Luke chapter 9. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes in the Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I have an immediate life application from this particular verse, is that the creator of everything, and I was looking at a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope a day ago, and it was showing just galaxies out as far as the lens could see, galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. And in every single galaxy are billions of stars. And around all of those stars are planets and there are all kinds of things going on. Jesus Christ created all of that. Every single thing that we can possibly see or feel or touch or smell or imagine came from his wisdom. And yet he came to earth and he had nowhere to lay his head. And here we worry about you know, not getting to bed on time, or we worry about maybe not making as much money as we'd like to make, or, uh, you know, a personal sickness or something. We have all kinds of things that we worry about. When the Creator Himself came and participated in this fallen world to redeem us out of it. And so we need to learn to keep things in proper perspective. And we need to remember that Jesus was a man. The Lord of all creation came and united with humanity in order to show us a better way. So please just keep that in mind. I just, I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about that as I was typing this particular sermon. Verse 11 does continue. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. He's got no place to stay. There's no suitable place to lay his head. And so Jacob arbitrarily grabs a stone and he places it where he can use it as a pillow. And I gotta tell you what, the significance of this act is of immense importance immense importance as we're going to see in the verses ahead. However, what the stone pictures itself is as beautiful as all of the other hidden treasures that God has concealed in the book of Genesis that we have been revealing over these sermons. The location, the stone, the person Jacob, the acts which follow, all of it, all of it points to Jesus and his work. Jesus is present with Jacob though he does not know it yet. Matthew Henry wisely says about this verse, because here's Jacob out there alone, maybe with just one person, and he's traveling away from his family for the first time. Matthew Henry says this, God's time to visit his people with his comforts is when they are most destitute of other comforts and other comforters. This is proven true in the next verse, verse 12. It says there, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob is lying here with a stone for a pillow. He's got the heavens above him for a blanket. And he has this spiritual vision of the physical reality that he's experiencing. Like Esau, Jacob is a fallen man. But he has already been a picture of the Messiah several times already. And now he sees his own picture of this mystery. A ladder is set up on the earth, meaning where it was placed and yet its top reaches to the heavens. This ladder is explicitly stated and explained by Jesus as a picture of himself. Like the ladder, Jesus' feet are on the earth, and yet he wears the heavenly crown. He is an earthly man in his humiliation, but he is the divine God in his exaltation. And he is the ladder between the two. There is the infinite God who fills the highest heavens And then there is us, fallen man, who can never attain to the high station of God. 
But in his rich goodness to us, he gave us the mediator between the two. He gave us a ladder. He gave us Jesus. He is the access point for all of heaven's riches, and he is the one and only path to reconciliation with God. All communication with God since the fall of man, all of it, has come through him, and there is no other way for it to occur, occur apart from him. It is by him alone that the two meet. In John 1, verses 47 through 51, we read this account. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. If you notice here, Jesus is speaking to Nathanael, and he calls him an Israelite indeed. What he is saying is that this vision right here that's given to Jacob, who would later be named Israel, is fulfilled in him. This Israelite indeed, his name is Nathanael, which means given of God. And he was specifically chosen because Jesus was given of God. He is the ladder of restoration for all people. And as I said, there's only one ladder in this vision. Jesus confirms this in John chapter 14. Listen carefully to what it says here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So my question is, did you catch who Jesus was speaking to? Who was it that first spoke to Jesus? It was Thomas, the twin. If you remember, back when the twins were first introduced, the word ta'om was used to describe them. The word ta'om in Hebrew means twin, and it's where we get the name Thomas. The twins are Jacob and Esau, and they look backward to Adam, and they look forward to Jesus. Thomas, the twin, is the one that asks the question, and Jesus answers. He says, it's me. I am the ladder. I am the way. You can meet with the Father through me, my twin. What Jacob, the twin, is seeing in his vision is explicitly realized in Jesus who is answering the Thomas, the twin. So how can we not see God's hand at work when we look at these patterns which run through the Bible? This ladder is a way of describing the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. I've explained this before. It's called the hypostatic union. It's where two hyposes or two states are in one person. We have the description here, I'll read it to you. Jesus Christ is fully God, united with full humanity, without intermingling or without separation of these qualities. In him, there is no change or division of any kind, completely and forever. He is the finite, united with the infinite. He is the point where God fellowships with man. I gotta tell you what, God's word is far more complex than we could imagine. Let's not close our eyes to what God is saying in this important lesson. The very angels of heaven who minister to God's people do so on the bridge between the infinite realm of heaven's eternity and the finite realm of earth's temporal reality. Now, you've probably heard Ephesians 4, verses 6 and 7 quoted many times before, even if you're not a Christian. But maybe now it will make a little bit more sense to you. And this is just one example 
of a theme that is continuous throughout the whole New Testament. Be anxious for nothing, it says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you can see, he is the latter. It is through Christ Jesus that man fellowships with God. The Geneva Bible states this about the latter. Christ is the latter by which God and man are joined together and by whom the angels minister to us. All graces are given to us by him and we ascend to heaven by him. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, Guess what happened in Genesis 18, if you remember, right at the beginning of Genesis 18, the Lord with two angels walks up to Abraham. Okay, so he is in a physical body when he shows up in Abraham's presence. It says here, and behold, the Lord stood above the ladder. I've noted many times in the past that God does not have parts. The Bible's very clear about that. God is spirit, okay? We don't see God. When it says that the Lord stood above the ladder and Jacob is seeing him, it is the same Lord that appeared to Abraham in Genesis. It is Jesus Christ who is standing above the ladder. Jesus is the son of man, Christ is the ladder, and the Lord Jehovah is the divine ruler of heaven. And from heaven, he stands as the sovereign ruler. His voice now speaks from heaven through his mediatory role as the ladder. And he first identifies himself as the Lord God of Abraham, your father. But Abraham is actually his grandfather. But he is the covenant father. As the Lord of Abraham and the God of Isaac, he now renews the promise that was made to both of them and through both of them. Verse 13 continues. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. The land on which he lies here does not mean the area of Bethel, but rather the entire land of Canaan, the promised land. This promise here is a land promise. It is given to him and to his descendants as a grant of ownership. However, we're going to see throughout the Bible that it is conditionally granted to them based on obedience. When they are obedient, the land is theirs and they may use it. When they disobey, the land is theirs and they may not use it. Others may dwell in the land, even today others are living in the land of Israel, but the land belongs to God and he has granted it to the descendants of Jacob. Now it's important to understand that the church did not replace Israel because if it did, then the land of Israel belongs to the Christians and that's not the case at all. The promises of being a descendant of Abraham by faith, if you remember in the past sermons I've said we are all descendants of Abraham by faith, these same promises are never stated in the same way of being Jacob's descendants by faith. Paul clearly contrasts Israel from everyone else in his writings. Anyone who is from within or without Israel is considered a descendant of Abraham by faith. But the same is not true with Jacob. Crossing these lines confuses what God is doing in the world. So here's what I want you to remember. I've got four points that I made for you to remember. Anyone who is a faithful believer is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Israel, our second point, comprises those faithful Jews who are obedient sons of Abraham. It is a people physically descended from Jacob. Third, the church is anyone who is called on Jesus, whether from Israel or from outside of Israel. And four, the church did not replace Israel, although we are grafted into Israel's spiritual heritage. Verse 14. 
Also, your descendants shall be as of the dust of the earth. This is a direct repeat of what was said to Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 16. And I will make your descendants as of the dust of the earth. Though Abraham has been in his grave now for 61 years, and that promise was spoken to him a hundred years before that, to the Lord who is outside of time, the words are just as fast and just as unchanging as he is. What was spoken to Abraham is confirmed in Jacob, and it is realized in Abraham's descendants today. Verse 14 continues, You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. Once again, this looks right back to Genesis 13, where the Lord said to Abram, Lift now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Abraham was told that he would be given the land. Jacob is told that he will fill the land. What these men see in the distant future, God sees as immediate and already accomplished. When his word goes out to us, it's already done in his mind. This follows a very important tenet, which I'd like you to remember. It is the biblical theme of our salvation. God says in his word in Romans that believers are already glorified. And in the book of Ephesians, he says we're already seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And yet, we're all standing here in our unglorified bodies, and none of us are in heaven yet. We're all sitting here on earth. The Bible in both testaments shows God's transcendence over time, and therefore it confirms the doctrine of eternal salvation for all who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, And the reason why that's important, I'm going to tell you why I keep bringing this, this point about eternal salvation up, is because this week I had a lady, and I'm not getting down on her, she just wanted to know. She emailed me and she said, Charlie, is salvation eternal? Can you lose your salvation? And this is a person who sat in my Bible classes for years. She sat in there for years. And I say this week after week after week, and I give all of the, the verses to defend it, and any verse which somebody has against this particular doctrine, all they need to do is send it to me, and I can show where it was inappropriately handled. Salvation is eternal. And we need to be reminded of this again and again and again, that God is outside of time. And therefore, when he saves you and seals you with his Holy Spirit, the deal is done. It's not that he saves you and then unsaves you and then saves you and then unsaves you. God does one thing and he does it right now and it never changes after that point. So do not fear and use these verses that we're looking at today to understand God's transcendence of what's going on. We are eternally saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 continues, And in you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This particular portion of the blessing that's being given is realized directly in Jesus Christ. All of the families of the earth are given the choice of calling on him or not calling on him. The blessing of the Messiah promised through Abraham and then through Isaac is now confirmed in Jacob. To Jacob, it is spoken and it will occur. To us, it is spoken and it has come about. The surety of God's word is the surety of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Jacob is setting out on what is going to be a very long and it's going to be a very frustrating journey, which will see him grow into a large family and an entire congregation of people. He's going to have flocks. He's going to have, he's actually going to become two camps. They're going to call him Mahanaim, which means two camps. 
despite the trials and the troubles that he has, the Lord is with him and he is guiding him. And when the Lord says to him, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you, it is an assurance that he will never leave him. The words that the Lord has spoken to Jacob right here are still being confirmed in us today. And so Jacob understood that the Lord would always and forever remain with him. When Jacob is told right here in this particular passage is realized in us in the New Testament. This is from Hebrews chapter 13. It says there, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Stand firm on that. I mean, absolutely stand firm on that. Yes, trials are going to come. Pain and suffering is going to come. But the Lord is with us and nothing that man can do can harm us. The great God of the Bible has promised this to each one of us. The Bible never says, and I want you to understand this because this is something you see on TV and in churches all over the world. The Bible never says that we're not going to suffer and it never says that we're not going to have hardships. That is a myth of bad theology. What it does promise is that just like Jacob, with his many years of trials ahead, the Lord is with him. He is with us too. Jacob was cheated. He suffered a great deal of loss throughout his years and he also lost loved ones. But through it all, he kept his eyes on the prize and he asks us now to do the same. Let's just remember Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, before we go to the next verse, what I want to do is I want to read the promises that were given to Abraham and the promises given to Jacob side by side. And I want you to listen to them and I want you to see the similarities, but I also want you to see the differences. And there's a reason why I'm doing this. Here's to Abraham. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as of the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and width, for I give it to you. Now he says it to Jacob. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as of the dust of the earth. You shall sp spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Both of them are spoken in exactly the same area, Bethel. Both received promises after separating from someone. Abraham had just separated from Lot and Jacob is now just separated from his family. To Abraham, he indicates the directions of the compass and then he promises to him the descendants uh, and his descendants, the land, and then that they will be as of the dust of the earth. That's the order in which he says these things. To Jacob, he first promises the land to him as descendants and then that they will be as of the dust of the earth. And only after that does he give the directions. The order is changed. When he gives the directions to Abraham, it is after he returns from Egypt and he enters into the promised land. And the directions he gives are north, south, east, and west. But to Jacob, it is before he leaves the land and the directions are west, east, 
north and south. The orders are changed, but they both form a cross as he speaks. He could have done it this way. He doesn't. He does it this way, and he does it in reverse. After speaking to Abraham, Abraham moves south. After speaking to Jacob, Jacob moves north. To both of them, the Lord closes his word with a promise concerning the land. The land of Israel, in other words, is the center of the nations, and it is extremely important to the Lord. We trifle with his land and with his people who own that land at our own expense. And I bring this up because the Lord does not change, and neither does his intentions for his people and his land. What we are doing in the world today, what we are forcing upon the people of Israel, can only meet with un unhappy circumstances. And we need to remember that. We need to oppose anything which our government proposes for dividing the land of Israel. We need to oppose it vehemently. It's not going to change anything. It is going to happen. The Bible says it. But is it going to happen in our life, or is it going to happen 150 years from now or 1,000 years from now? i got to tell you what. It's coming, and when it does, this world is going to go into a whirlwind. It's going to be disastrous. So we need to oppose these things because it is coming, and we don't want it to come on us. Unless the rapture comes first, and I don't care what happens to it. Our second thought today, Christ our gate, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Okay, here he is. He's laying there, and he had no idea that the Lord was there with him. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua goes over the uh, Jordan River, and he meets a man with a drawn sword, and he doesn't know who he is. He questions him, and it turns out to be the commander of the army of the Lord. It is Jesus. We know that it's the Lord because it says, take off your shoes here. This is holy ground, and that only happened one other time in the Bible. It was when Moses went up to the burning bush, and it says, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes here. All right. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the young Samuel is sleeping around the uh, area of the tabernacle and the Lord calls to him in the night and he doesn't know it's the Lord. The Lord calls him three times and he doesn't know it's the Lord. In Luke chapter 24, two disciples walk about seven miles with the risen Lord and they don't know it's him until they sit down for a meal and the Lord breaks bread. Then they realize it's him. In John chapter 20, Mary does not realize that she is in the presence of the risen Christ until he speaks to her directly by name. And guess what? Even in Acts chapter 9, there's a Pharisee. His name is Saul, and he's heading up to Damascus to arrest some Christians. And he's confronted by the glory of the Lord. He speaks to him, and he has no idea who he is. In these and many other instances, the people are unaware of the presence of the Lord in their midst. The verse then is not saying that Jacob didn't understand that the Lord is everywhere but or that he's omnipresent. Instead, it's saying that the Lord was there in a significant way. It's a tangible manifestation of the presence of the Lord. God is everywhere at all times, but his presence can be, and it often is, more expressed in some places than in others. He dwelt between, for example, the, the uh, cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. His glory was seen by many prophets in Israel, both in the land and then the Israelites who were exiled out of the land. Even today, the glory of the Lord is manifest more greatly in some places than in others. Now, what am I going to lead to? Every believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The believer has, at the moment that they accept Jesus Christ, 
all of the Spirit that they're ever going to get at that moment. You will never get more of the Holy Spirit. However, the Spirit can obtain more of the believer. In the Bible, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a passive action. A passive action. His presence fills an obedient soul in a passive way, which is displayed in an active presentation of his glory revealed. Like Jacob, awaking from his sleep, the people around us should look at us and they should say, surely the glory of the Lord is in this place. But it's sad because when many see us, like Jacob, they don't even know that the Lord is present. So my, my recommendation to all of you, including myself, is that we make a determined change in that. And that when people see us, they say, yes, the glory of the Lord is in this place. Okay? Verse 17. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? I got to tell you something here. Jacob's fear is not the fear of a person who's surrounded by enemies and is about to die. His fear is on a completely different level. It is something experienced by many people in both Testaments of the Bible. I'm going to give you two examples, one from the old and one from the new. All right, this is the first one is from Isaiah chapter 6. It says there, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the New Testament, we read this in Mark chapter 4. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now they're, they're getting ready to die, and they're afraid. Okay, I said, this isn't the fear of somebody that's being surrounded by an army of enemies and is ready to die. It's on a completely different level. These men are already about to die, and they're afraid. It says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and, said, and the sea and said, Peace! Be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And then we come to this verse. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? The fear of Jacob, the fear of Isaiah, and the fear of these disciples can all be understood in the context of fallen man in the presence of absolute holiness. I will tell you this, people who treat Jesus flippantly as if he were some type of a cosmic candy man or an ATM machine, and we see it all the time on Christian TV, we see it in churches all over the world, I have to tell you, these people have never understood the splendor and the majesty of the Lord Jesus and the enormity of their own sin in his presence, and we all need to reflect on that, and we need to treat our Lord with absolute holiness. That's what he is. He is pure and he is holy. He's also our friend. We don't want to deny that. He's our lover. He's our, our great God. He's so many things to us, but he is above all our creator and he is holy and we should never treat him in a flippant manner. Verse 17 continues. This is none other than the house of God. This again is a picture and a confirmation of who Jesus is. 
Jacob exclaims here that where he is is the house of God, Bethel. In Hebrew, it's Beit, which means house, and El, which means God, Beit El or Bethel. Wherever the Lord manifests himself, the house of God is seen. And we know that it is not a single place on earth, but it is wherever the Lord is revealed. Verse 17 continues, and this is the gate of heaven. John was on the island of Patmos when he had a vision. In Revelation chapter 4, he sees what Jacob saw. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The word used for door in this verse in the book of Revelation in the Greek is thyra. The New International Version translates this exact same word as gate in John 10 verse 9. It says there, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find good pasture. So you see, all over this account, we're seeing Jesus revealed again and again and again. That's why these verses are put in here the way that they are. The gate of heaven, which Jacob saw, is the ladder. It is the path. It is the entrance, and it is the means of access into heaven. It is the Lord above the ladder. Everything that we are seeing right here, every bit of it cries out, it is Jesus. When we understand who he is and what he means for each of us, we too, just like Jacob, can say, this is the gate of heaven. There is a narrow gate, according to Jesus, at the end of a narrow path, which opens to the wide expanse of heaven's glory. And then, according to Jesus, there is a broad gate, which comes from a broad path, which leads to the narrow confines of hell's prison. The choice is ours, who we will follow. And I got to tell you what, I will follow Jesus. Verse 18, then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar. As soon as he gets up, he takes this stone pillow and he stood it up as a makeshift altar. And then he, he's going to pour oil on it as an act of consecration. It doesn't appear that he has any idea at this point that it is exactly the same spot where Abraham had built an altar many years earlier. And there's nothing pagan in what he's doing here. Monuments and altars are noted throughout the early books of the Bible. His anointing this stone is a demonstration of his faith in the vision that he had and in the promises that were given during the vision. But the stone that he erects and what he is doing here, yes, all of it points to Jesus. The ladder had a beginning up in heaven with the Lord, okay? The ladder is the Lord. We've seen that. And the ladder has a set point on the earth where it rests. It is a stone. The stone is Jesus. And no, this isn't stretching anything at all. The words for the stone that he had put at his head are ben asher sam merashotav. The same words in the Hebrew for stone and head are found in the 118th Psalm, which I said just I, coincidentally I read that today in order. I didn't choose that, but the Lord was good to have that happen. And those words in the 118th Psalm are speaking of Jesus. It says there, Eben ma'asu habonim hayeta lerosh pena. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone in the field was never used in the construction of this city. It was rejected. And yet it became the chief cornerstone of the new city, Bethel, the house of God. Verse 18 continues, and poured oil on top of it. 
the oil is poured on top of this stone to consecrate it as the entry point into the house of God. The high priest of Israel, the king of Israel, the prophets of Israel, all of them were anointed with oil on their heads. The king is the ruler, the high priest is the mediator, and the prophet is the one who speaks the word. All of these we've seen in this passage right here. Like them, Jesus is the ruler at the top of the ladder. And Jesus is the ladder. He's the mediator. He's the priest. But Jesus was also the one who came to earth to suffer for us as well. When he did, he was anointed before he was crucified. He has become our access point into the house of God. He has become our mediator and he is our Lord. Hebrews 1 shows us this. It says right there in Hebrews 1, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And to confirm all of this, we come to the next and last verse of the day. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Lutz previously. Anytime you see a name or a, a word or a designation for a city, I've always said this, it has a meaning. God would not have told us the previous meaning of the city unless he wanted us to make a connection. The place is now called Bethel, the house of God. It's a picture of heaven where God resides. But the name of the city was formerly given as Lutz. Most concordances, if you go to them, will say that the name Lutz is almond. And they get this through a backdoor translation of Genesis 30, verse 37. But the word comes from a verb, which means to turn aside in a negative way, such as turning away from wisdom or being a twisted person. Abarim gives the correct meaning of Lutz when they say that it was named after a crooked and perverse generation that lived there. And this is the reason why Jacob didn't enter the city, because of the crooked and twisted nature which Lutz implies. And this is exactly a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us. Six times in the New Testament, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in Acts, in, in 1 and 2 Peter, he is called the stone which the builders rejected, going right back to the 118th Psalm. Then in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the people of Israel, save yourself from this crooked generation. The symbolism here is given, it is exact, and it is amazing. The stone was rejected by this crooked city, and yet it becomes the cornerstone of Bethel, the house of God, which pictures heaven. Instead of entering Lutz, Jacob slept in the field, and he had a vision of the glory of the Lord, who would come to this twisted and this crooked earth, leaving the house of God to redeem his people. And remember, this is symbolized in Jacob's trip from Beersheba to Padanaram, the redemption of man. And surprisingly enough, while reading things on the uh, internet, my friend Sergio found something by a uh, 19th century rabbi, a guy named Joseph Rosen, who actually explains the mystery of Lutz perfectly. It is a fruit, and it's similar to the almond, but that's not the translation we want to get for the name of the city. But here's how he describes this fruit. Lutz starts off sweet and becomes bitter in contrast to the almond, which starts out bitter and becomes sweet. Man is the one who corrupted the sweet earth that God created, Lutz. The Lord is the one who has come 
to make that which is bitter sweet again and restore access to the house of God, Bethel. I hope you're going to give me just two more minutes to explain to you how he does this and how you too can enter this wonderful, glorious house of God when your days expire, just in case you've never done it before. Jesus Christ came as a man. We've seen this again and again and again in this passage. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he was capable and qualified because of that to overcome the sin nature that Adam had put into humanity. But he was not born of a man. He was born of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. That's why he is capable. He didn't inherit man's sin. But he had something that he had to do in the process. He had to fulfill the law that you and I cannot fulfill. The law condemns us, whether it's natural law or whether it's the law of Moses. We inherently know from the law that we are condemned and that we have no way of reconciling to God by our own actions. But Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled both of those laws, the natural law and the Mosaic law, on our behalf. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for us. And all God asks us to do is to say, I can't do it myself, but I know that God can do it for me in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put my faith in him. And by putting your faith in what Jesus Christ did, you too can prevail over the law of Moses because it is fulfilled in him on your behalf. It's the Bible's uh, doctrine of substitution. God will allow one thing to substitute for another. Has to be perfect if it's a man because if it was any other man, it could be anybody on earth, they could fulfill the law. They've already inherited Adam's sin nature. So it had to be a perfect man and that perfect man had to fulfill the law and he did. So by faith, you can have restoration with God you can have peace with God and you can enter into the house of God some wonderful day when he calls you home. May it be so in your life. All right, one more thing is to tell you that our next sermon will be the last three verses that I read at the beginning of the uh, uh, chapter. It's uh, Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22, and I, it's entitled, Our Christian Offering. I've never done a sermon in my life on Christian giving, but I'd like to give one. And I think you will be surprised because I'm going to speak about tithing. And most of you have no idea, I'm sure, unless you've been in one of my Bible studies, how deceived you have been on the concept of tithing. How absolutely deceitful churches are on this issue. And how God wants you to give out of a willing heart and not out of some compulsion. Okay, so if you want to understand what the Bible teaches about tithing, which doesn't apply to Christians anyway, please stay tuned for that and I think you will be simply amazed at what you hear. Anyway, that's next week. It's only three verses, but it'll probably last a couple hours. Anyway, um, I got a closing verse for you today and I chose this one from the 85th Psalm and I have to tell you something that this so perfectly resembles what we have seen in Jacob, his vision today. I, I, I just, it, it's got Jacob's ladder written all over it. Here it is. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Tell me that's not Jesus Christ. Both looking up and looking down and being the ladder in between, it's all about him. What a great God he is. One more thing and then we'll take communion. This is our weekly poem. This is called Jesus, Our Ladder to Heaven. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set and he just couldn't go on. And he took one of the stones of the place that felt just right and put it at his head, using it as a pillow. 
and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, saw this fellow. A ladder was set up on the earth, and to heaven it did sweep. And there the angels of God were ascending, and there the angels of God were descending. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac whom you misled. And yet he blessed you, you and not another. The land on which you lie I will give to you, and after you your descendants are granted it too. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth is the promise from my mouth. You shall spread abroad to the four corners, you see, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Be not depressed, for I will not leave you until I have done this. It is so. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And yet I did not know it, but instead, now I have the assurance of his great grace. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. It is the gate of heaven where it and earth interlace. It is the place where angels do trod. Then Jacob rose in the morning early and took the stone that he had put at his head. He set it up as a pillar where the gates are pearly and poured oil on top of it. As its name he said, and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz previously. And in the names in themselves they have a story to tell, because we have in them a picture, you see. These things are given to show us God's story, which is revealed in our beautiful Lord Jesus. Heaven, the ladder, the stone, all tell of his glory and the mission on which he came to redeem us. Let us cherish these precious stories and in them search out Jesus' glories. And as we ponder them in our heart, may we remember to give God our praise and commit our lives to make a fresh start, determined to walk with the Lord all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of what you've done for us in the person of Jesus, your Son. He's the Lord in heaven, he's the ladder to us, and he is the stone which we have rejected, and yet you've called him the chief cornerstone, and you've given us the choice to accept him as our Lord or to reject him. You've given us the choice, and that shows you what a gracious God you are and how merciful you are to the sons of men who turn their backs on you until maybe their last breath, and then they call out in faith, oh, I want Jesus, and even at that moment, you are willing to forgive them and to give them eternal life. Lord, I would pray for any person here that's never made that decision that they would call on you in spirit and in truth and just give their lives to you. And if any person is watching this on the YouTube and has never seen their need for Jesus, that they will call on him with their heart today. Lord, be with each person here. Give them happiness of soul and uh, blessings in their life and fill their tables with good things and the May there be contentment in their homes as people come and go in their homes and their families. May there be peace and uh, just joy. And Lord, thank you for every good blessing that you've blessed us. And we want to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor that you're due. In the exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.